If you have a Bible, it's taken and turned to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Our series continues through the book of Colossians. Jesus, first place in everything. Colossians chapter 3. We'll pick it up reading in verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Dress like a Christian. That's what this passage is calling us to do. Dress like a Christian. If you've ever seen the show, uh, the show was popular a number of years ago. If you've ever seen, seen the show, it's called Undercover Boss. And what happens is the CEO of, of, a, of a well-to-do company, he, goes, he, he puts on a disguise and goes undercover in his own company as, uh, you know, he kind of puts the scrubs on and he goes and he, and he tries, to, tries to experience the day-to-day life of his company to try to figure out what's going on. So, so he, he gets rid of the private jet and the nice suit and the nice shoes and the, and the you know, the well-groomed and he puts on this disguise to go, to go undercover to look like one of his employees. For Christians, we face the temptation to take off our exalted clothes that God gives to us and dress like something we're not. And so when the Bible tells us to dress like a Christian, it's not addressing your clothes. It's not addressing what you're wearing, but it's, it's addressing your heart. We face temptations every single day to conform to the world instead of conforming to the image of Christ. And so the goal here, when he says, put on then, in verse 12, those first three words, that's what it's saying. It's, it's put on the clothes. Christ-likeness is the goal. And so as Christians, we are to look like whose we are. Do you belong to Christ? And then do you look like them? That's the question here. Because the absence, if you remember, we looked last week at verses 1 through 11, we looked at the, the list of vices. Now the, the, the absence of those things does not necessarily mean you are exhibiting the kind of attitudes and behaviors that a follower of Jesus Christ should exhibit. There are vices to put off, which we read in verses uh, uh, five, uh, verse 5 and 8, especially of chapter 3. And there are virtues to put on. There are things that we should look like. Now, I want to 
I want, you, I want to draw your attention to a couple things before we get into the passage here. I want you to notice the emphasis on the heart and on thankfulness. So he says in verse 12, put on compassionate hearts. Um, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then he says, be thankful. Uh, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. With thank, at the end of verse 16, with thank, thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do, giving thanks. He's, he's really coming in at, to the heart here. And he's saying, what, what's, at the, what's at the ground level? What's going on inside? And that's the question. What's going on inside? What's going on inside your heart this morning? What's going on in the deepest level of your being? And so for a lot of us, we've got some things to take off. Right? We, we took off the outer facade. And I'm here at church, and I'm smiling. You know, then you go to that next layer, and there's that defensive layer that we all have. You know, that kind of that kind of puts up the, the lawyer comes out when anybody dares, you know, approach us with some shortcoming or sin. So take off the facade, take off the defensive layer, take off the the I know it all layer, take off the self-justifying layer, and get down to your heart, the very the very fabric of your being down in your heart. What's there? Is Christ there? Is Christ in you? What will be found? And then the question is, is what is true on the inside showing up on the outside? So we looked last week at three responsibilities we have in relation to our sinful vices. And today we're going to look at four responsibilities given to those chosen by God as it relates to godly virtues. And here's the first one. Four responsibilities given to those chosen by God as it relates to godly virtues. These are four responsibilities given to us. The first one is the grace of Jesus must bind us. There in verses 12, 13, and 14. Now Paul starts this section very similar to how he started the last section. He starts with our identity in Christ. He starts this section on virtues of what we're to put on, same way he started with the list of vices. Don't forget who you are in Christ. Don't forget who you are in Christ. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, man, like again, are we going to talk about this again? I have nothing to offer anybody. I have nothing to offer you except for Jesus Christ. If you're looking for five steps, seven keys, eight principles, or three rules, or three secrets to how to live the Christian life apart from Jesus Christ, you're in the wrong place. And you're at the wrong sermon. I have nothing to offer you without Christ. I have nothing to offer your marriage. I have nothing to offer your relationships. I have nothing to offer your addictions. I have nothing to offer your sins, your struggles. I have nothing to offer your finances in your heartaches, in your depression, in your anxiety, I have nothing to offer but Jesus Christ. Why? Why can't I just give you an eight-step program to work your way out of whatever you're in? Why just the crucified and risen Jesus? It's because he alone can solve your greatest problem, which is your sin. So Paul uses three words here to start in verse 12. He uses the word chosen, holy, and beloved. Or, if you're a true Baptist, beloved, right? So three words 
of our exalted position. Now get this. Here's your exalted position, and it's meant to crush human pride. They're not exalted titles meant to exalt yourself. They're meant to humble you. So chosen. That word means every follower of Jesus has been graciously chosen by God to receive his offered salvation through Jesus Christ. We get this in Ephesians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Timothy 2, all throughout scripture. That God has chosen to set his love on us and save us. And it had nothing to do with our merit. It had nothing to do with how impressive we are or were. It was all God's gracious choice and initiative. And then he uses the word holy. The word holy means to be set apart. So you are set apart by God in Christ for God. That's what holiness is. You've been set apart by God in Christ for God. And think about that word holy. You know, we're striving, as Christians, we strive to be described in a lot of ways, don't we? We want to be cool. We want to be relevant. Or maybe it's kind of on the opposite end, as, as this culture gets increasingly hostile. Maybe you want to be known as, as a Republican or a conservative. You want to be described as constitutional or whatever it might be. What about holy? Would you want to be described that way? He uses the word beloved. We are objects of God's incomprehensible love. A special, enduring, saving, and forgiving love that God does not share with those outside of Christ. And all three of these words are meant to humble us. Here's what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here's what he says. He says, for you, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has, there's the word, chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. He says, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, listen, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love, there it is, on you and chose you. He says, for you are the fewest of all peoples. And then he goes on to say in the, in the next slide here, uh, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Again, God is saying, listen, it wasn't because you're so great. He says, as a matter of fact, out of all the nations, think about this, God's saying, I look out at all the nations and every single nation is more impressive than you. Every single nation is more powerful than you. Every single nation has more to offer than you. He goes, I didn't choose you for any of those reasons because you had none of them. If you're a Christian this morning, it's not because of what you have to offer to God. This is, as a matter of fact, this is something Paul tells, tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling. Consider why God called you. Not many of you were wise, According to worldly standards, not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We got to start there. Got to start there. Because then he goes into 
Well, let's put on some virtues. Put on some virtues. Because of these exalted positions in Christ, put on some virtues. Here they are. A compassionate heart. If you have a King James... Uh, if you have a King James Bible, the, the, the King James uses the words bowels of mercy. And that's, that's really the interpretation here. It's, it's, it's a deep heart level compassion. Someone who isn't indifferent to suffering but merciful towards it. Who are you at the deepest level? And then he uses the word kindness. Here's how we describe kindness. Kindness is an attitude of grace that mellows all that's harsh in our hearts. Kindness is an attitude of grace that mellows all that is harsh in our hearts. Do you have a harsh heart that needs to be mellowed? The mellow out, chill out? We need the help of the Spirit. This is something Jesus, Jesus was this, wasn't he? In Matthew chapter 11, what did he say? He says, come to me all you who are weary. You know, for many of us, you know, our hearts and our attitude, we're so harsh. It's like, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I'll weary out some more. You know, we'll just beat this thing out of you. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary, and I, my yoke, it's light. My burden's easy. My yoke is light. And then he uses the word humility. Not a false, we, we talked about false humility last week. But this, this idea, in, in, in Greek culture, humility was not an exalted thing. As a matter of fact, it was, it was seen negatively. Anytime in ancient Greek literature where it talks about humility, it is talking about it in the most derogatory of ways. Seen as weak and shameful and just lowly, good-for-nothing people. What does Paul say in Philippians 2? He's like, this is the very thing we're to imitate from Christ. He's our lowly Savior. And Paul says in Philippians 2, we're to esteem others as more important than ourselves. How important are you in your world? He goes to patience next. Okay, now we're really cranking up because now we're talking about patience. Who here is impatient? Raise your hand. Let's get some confession. Yeah, okay. I raise my hand. Not to, not to give you an example on how to raise your hand. I am impatient. I get impatient at traffic lights. I get impatient at all the four-way stops in this town. <laughs> It's your turn, go, right? Hong Kong, go, your turn. No, you go. And you get in this waving battle. It's like, who's going? Let's get this, let's get a move on. And our reaction to people, you know, when, when we're met with folly, when we're met with somebody who's unteachable, when we're met with somebody who insults us or is harsh towards us, this is a long suffering. We say, man, I've really come to the end of my rope. This says our rope is a lot longer than what we think it is. That we're patient. That we're not, that, that we're not, gonna, we're not, gonna, we're not going to approach the folly or the, someone with an unteachable spirit or insults or harshness in a way of cynicism, bitterness, despair, or anger as we interact with people. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say we're going to bear with one another. We're going to endure the complaints and hurts that happen in any community. He says bear, it, it literally means to put up with each other. Now I want to put a little, a, little, a little notice here, a little parenthetical statement. Now when it says put up with each other, it's not how we normally think of putting up with somebody. Normally we say we're putting up with somebody. We're putting on this facade of like, yeah, you know, our hearts are really full of cynicism and bitterness and anger. But on the outside we're just like pretending that we, you know, are putting up with them or that we're friends or whatever. 
That's not what it's talking about here. As a matter of fact, Jesus did this very thing. Matthew 17, 17, he comes off the mountain, and the, the guy comes with his demon-possessed son. He says, hey, they, they couldn't do this. You remember how Jesus responded? He goes, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So Jesus put up with a whole lot, but he never abandoned, and he never harbored bitterness. His love always endured, and he was never a phony. And then he talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness. He's in verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. There will be legitimate times of complaints. There will be legitimate complaints from one person towards another. We ought to always be ready to forgive. Now we're often ready to complain, aren't we? We're ready, we're ready to fuss. We're ready to bring our complaint. We're eager, we're ready. But we must also be ready to forgive. We should have that same attitude like, I can't wait to forgive. You know, as much as I can't wait to complain or to tell this person what's really bothering me, we should have the attitude of, I can't wait to forgive them. We should be just as ready to forgive as we are to fuss. If you're not ready to forgive, you're not ready to raise a grievance. And we're called to have a mutually forgiving fellowship within the church as individuals, in our marriages, in our families. We have been, notice what he says here, as the Lord has forgiven you, we've been released and forgiven by God and we are to share that blessing with others. Are you being a good sharer? Is your marriage, are your relationships forgiving relationships? I'm not asking if it's in ignoring marriage where you just ignore everything, or you ignore everything in the church, or you're just going to ignore everything about that person. Is it a forgiving? It was Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of the late Billy Graham, who's famous for saying, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. Wrapped all in love in verse 14. Wrapped all in love. This, it binds, the grace of Jesus binds us. It binds it all together. Love, God's grace. You can't do anything acceptable before God without love. That's 1 Corinthians 13. To be bound by the grace of Jesus is to have what's true in your heart because of Jesus, show up in the practical outworking of your life and showing grace to others. That's what it means for the grace of Jesus to bind you. It means that what's on the inside, the grace that Jesus has showed you in your own life and in your own heart is showing up on the outside. Let's keep moving. Because there's a second responsibility we have. The grace of Jesus must bind us. Number two, the peace of Jesus must rule us. That's verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So Paul is turning to peace. It's to rule the believer. It's supposed to call the shots. It pictures an umpire making a decision during a competition. A peace, think about this, a peace so powerful that Paul is saying it should rule your heart. Now, when we think about peace, we think about peace as a result of something. But here he's saying it should be a ruling attribute of your heart. So what does Paul mean when he talks about peace? There's two things I want you to grasp. Number one, Jesus is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2. It is through Jesus we have peace with God. That's our position. 
But more than that, it's, it's the shalom of the Old Testament. That there's an experiential peace that brings rest to our souls. That God gives our hearts rest. Peace with God through Jesus leads to the peace of God in our hearts and giving us that rest and that hope and that assurance. So the peace of Christ rules you. It's got to call the shots. It's every, every, every decision you make should be ruled by the peace of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I think that means we ask ourselves two questions when we make decisions. And more about just which car to buy. But what should I say? What attitude should I have? There's two questions. Number one, will this decision offend Christ who is my peace? Or another way of saying it is grieve the Holy Spirit. Will this decision, with the peace of Jesus ruling my heart, I should be able to say, no, this decision will not offend Jesus who is my peace. Secondly, will I be at genuine Christ-given peace making this decision? So not only does this decision flow from the peace I have with Christ, but at the end of it, when I make this decision, will I have rest in my soul? Or will my soul have turmoil and hurt and pain? Those are the questions. Now going back to the vices that we looked at last week in the previous verses. These don't, those don't come from peace and they will take away your peace and your rest. So does your marriage, does our church, do our relationships have true restful peace? And if it does, is it rooted in Jesus Christ? Because here's the thing, there's such thing as a false peace, isn't there? Remember Jonah? Remember the prophet Jonah? Remember the story? He runs from God, and uh, remember, remember what he was doing when there's that big storm, and they were fighting for their lives, and he was being disciplined for his disobedience? What was Jonah doing? He was sleeping. He was totally at peace. Listen. The most dangerous place to be, the most dangerous place to be is at peace in your sin. The most dangerous place to be is at peace in your sin. If you've come to peace or you're on peaceful terms with your sin, you are in grave danger. May God never let us be at peace in our sin. Because we're all called to be this body of peace. We are the, we're, to, we're called not just to be a part of God's family, but to live a certain life. And, and as corporately as a church, we're to be at peace with one another. Because peace is inescapably both individual and corporate. corporate. You must have peace with God through Christ. And you must be unified in Christ with other believers. It's one of the key blessings of the Christian life is to have peace, to have a clear conscience. And if your heart has no peace, then something is wrong. If you're here this morning and you said peace isn't there, something's wrong. And a lack of peace can lead to all sorts of anxiety. It can lead to stress and depression and confusion and doubt. And many times when we lack peace, we go look for it somewhere else. We look for something to to medicate the turmoil in our hearts. Peace is that inner rest. Peace is that inner rest that comes from reconciliation with God. 
We don't, which means we don't need luxury for peace, and we don't even need the absence of adversity for peace. It comes from God. This is why Isaiah 26, verse 3, you probably know the verse. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. There's a third responsibility that we have. The grace of Jesus must bind us. The peace of Jesus must rule us. And number three, the word of Jesus must fill us. The word of Jesus must fill us. Notice that in verse, six, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Okay, let the word of Christ, what is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the message that centers on Jesus, which we find in the Bible. So the gospel is to have a gracious and glorious presence in our lives individually, but also corporately as a church. It's to permeate our gatherings, and it's to permeate our hearts so that it can have its transforming power as we submit to its authority. That word, uh, you have that word dwell richly. It literally means to find a home or to be at home. It's kind of the idea, I mean, it should find, not, not just take up residence, you know, it's not, it's not renting a spot for a little bit. You know, until you, until you kick it out for the, for the next thing to come in to rule your heart or to fill your heart. No, it's, it's, it has a home. Does the word of God have a home in your heart? It should have a permanent residence. Not a superficial passing thing, but, but deep and penetrating. Enabling the spirit to use its word to unleash its transforming power in your life. And he says there, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching is the positive side. You give truth. Admonishing is kind of the negative side. You're warning someone about where their sin will take them. We have to ask ourselves, am I willing to be taught and admonished? Or, or am I good? I'm good. Um, you may have picked up on this, but I tend to talk fast. Uh, so I'm going to preface that with this story I'm about to tell you very slowly. Um, I was a hospice chaplain at my previous ministry in, in northern Iowa, and I had the opportunity to visit with a man who was, uh, ended up being just weeks from passing away. His name was John Harlan, and when I first met John, he was an unbeliever. His sister had been praying for him for 30 years to come to know Christ as his Savior, as a matter of fact, she sent me a copy of a letter that she wrote to him back in the early 1990s, or maybe even in the 1980s, about how she was praying for him, and she gave him a Bible. And she was praying for him that one day, even though, even, and he wrote a letter back saying, it doesn't make sense right now, and I'm glad you know Jesus, but it's just, it's not for me right now. About 30-ish years later, um, she gets this call, Jane does, that some chaplain with hospice is going to come visit her brother. And she was not going to have 30 years of prayer be wasted by some chaplain who's going to mess up the gospel. And so she was there, and her husband was. And I had a great relationship with them. And after she kind of learned that, okay, this guy knows the gospel, uh, she, she kind of filled me in on all this stuff. And, and I remember after one day of visiting with John, 
and sharing the gospel with him and, and trying to encourage him and all these things, I, I left and went to go out to my car, and this wife's husband followed me out. And he called my name and, turned, and I turned around and, and uh, he, started, he, said, he said, hey, just want to let you know, you talk really fast. <laughs> and he said, John is coming to the end of his life and he's on medication and he was still very aware and able to talk, but he goes, you got to give him some time to process things. And my first initial response inside was like, seriously, guy? I'm like sharing the gospel here. Like, I'm doing the Lord's work, and how dare you come out, you know, and tell me that I ought to slow down. But he was right. And I, needless to say, at that moment, I was not very teachable. I still struggle with that, not just the fast talking, but even being teachable to this day. And praise the Lord, to finish the story, he eventually got saved, and he's a man I look so forward to meeting in heaven And even in the last week or so of his life, you could see the change in his face. It's really cool. But everyone here is to take part in the teaching and admonishing of the church. And it's interesting what this verse says. You want to make disciples? Sing. Wait a minute, that's not what we learn about making disciples. But that's what it says here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, church. Teaching and admonishing one another. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing. I'm not going to try to distinguish between psalms, hymns, hymns and spiritual songs. It's, it's hard to distinguish them. They're probably different songs done with various forms of music. But either way, I think he uses three terms. Their music wasn't stereotyped. It wasn't restricted. Their, their, their words were. The words had to be the words of Christ. And about the message of Christ. Our songs must be songs that teach us about God. That teach us about Christ. Songs that many times we sing songs that are prayers to God. And sometimes we sing songs that are kind of meant to be sung to each other. It is well with my soul. Something we want to encourage each other with. This is why we're supposed to sing. We're supposed to sing in the church. Our songs must be songs that teach us about God, that exalt Jesus Christ. And again, here he says thankfulness. Verse 15, we didn't touch on that thankfulness. Verse 16, it says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When you sing, does your heart agree with your mouth? Here's another way of asking it. Are the songs of the faith just stuck in your head? Are they stapled to your heart? Every Christian should be a singer. May not please the ear, but it'll cheer your heart. When I was taking a business ethics class to get a real estate license, we did, the guy that was teaching the class did this, this psychology lesson where everybody, everybody wrote down uh, their favorite singer and, and, uh, and the song. And their favorite song of that singer. And, and the point was of this psychology experiment, I guess, was that, that whatever you wrote down is, is, is like who you want to be. It's who you fantasize about being. You know, up there on the stage is, you know, whatever your favorite singer is, singing that one song with all the crowd, you know, roaring and cheering and doing all these things. And, and, uh, and that was kind of the, the point. Um, and it 
really helped my real estate career going through that. Uh, <clears throat> but, there was, but, but the idea was, was uh, you wrote down this person and that's who you wanted to be. Um, think about it. People seeing, you're probably wondering which one I wrote down, aren't you? I'm not telling you. Uh, in the word, in the word, to answer that question, in the words of the great theologian Garth Brooks, just because, just because I don't answer doesn't mean I don't care. But I'm not telling you. Uh, but we sing, they sing for the praise of man. Why do we sing? We sing to exalt Christ. When Kevin's up here, why does he sing? To exalt Christ. The choir, why do they sing? To exalt Christ. Why do you sing? To exalt Christ. That thankfulness enables us to sing no matter what comes our life. Remember Paul and Silas sang in the Philippian prison in Acts chapter 16? That's why songs that teach the message of Christ are so important. There are seasons when I'll, when I'll read through a hymn book as part of my devotions along with my Bible. There are great songs with great truth from every generation. Use them, sing them, grow with them. Let the word of Christ fill you, both his word and with songs as well. Let's look at the last responsibility as we bring this uh, to a close here. The grace of Jesus must bind us. The peace of Jesus must rule us. The word of Jesus must fill us. And lastly, in verse 17, the name of Jesus must preoccupy us. And whatever you do, he says, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Names don't have near as much meaning as they do, uh, as they did in the ancient world. But many times, as you go through the Bible, God, when he changed a person, he changed their name as well. So listen, we're, we don't, when we're saved, we don't, we don't undergo a physical name change, but we do get a, a different spiritual name. We go under a spiritual name change. We bear the name of Christ. We are called Christians. And it says we are to do everything in his name. Everything we, should be, we, should, we do should be done in consideration of the fact that we belong to Jesus. Our behavior should be consistent with Jesus' character. So whether we are working, whether we're mowing, whether we're playing basketball, whether we're involved in some sort of political activity, whatever it is, we should be doing those things in the name of Jesus. Reflecting who he is. My name, if I bear the name of Jesus, I must reflect who he is. We are always in concert with his character. This is the simplest, most basic rule of thumb, and it's something we've talked about all through this passage. We are to live and act consistently with who Jesus is and what he wants. So the question is there anything that you have permitted or you do permit into your life that cannot be associated with Jesus? Is there anything you do, that addiction, that hard attitude? We know the answer to that question, don't we? Our impatience, our love to be exalted. We can't hold those up and say, this is associated with who Jesus is. Whatever your conscience is telling you right now, that's in your life, that's part of your attitude, the words that come from your mouth, the thought life, 
the desires. You can't hold this up and say, this belongs to Jesus. Ask yourself the question, can I do this as a representative of Jesus Christ? The name of Jesus must preoccupy us. As we go into everything, we must say, I'm occupied. My heart, my mind is occupied with Jesus Christ. And so we start and finish the same way. After all that God has done for you, remember the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's that thanks. Are you thankful for what God has done for you? Are you, have you received, have you experienced what God is offering to do for you? To forgive your sins? To give you eternal life through Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again? Have you experienced that? If you haven't, I'll be up front after the service. Come talk to me. So, are you dressed like a Christian? May you be bound by the grace of Jesus, ruled by the peace of Jesus, filled with the word of Jesus, and preoccupied by the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you so failing in so many ways. My relay of this very text, however imperfect, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do these things, that out of all that you've done for us in Christ, that we would we would be bound by your grace. We'd be ruled by your peace. Lord, that, that we would be filled with your word, filled with the gospel, filled with Christ. And Lord, that we would be always preoccupied by the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, for those maybe who never received Jesus as their savior, may today be the day they're saved. In Jesus' name.